With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello all, Eric Rivenis here, and welcome to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. It is so great to introduce my guest today, Rachel Hannell. She is a former newspaper reporter and copy editor, and teaches creative writing at Minnesota State University in Mankato. She is also the author of 10 nonfiction books for children. The book she is here to talk about today, however, is not a children's book and is called Not the Camilla We Knew, One Woman's Path from Small Town America to the Symbionese Liberation Army. Thank you so much for joining me. Great to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So where did the idea for this book come from? So I came across Camilla's story way back in 1999. I saw a picture of her in a newspaper. And the reason why her picture appeared in the newspaper is because it was alongside a large story that happened the same day, uh, especially here in Minnesota, but it was a national story, uh, when Sarah Jane Olson was arrested. And she was arrested after uh, being underground for 24 years after her involvement in the Symbionese Liberation Army. Uh, she was arrested in St. Paul. The FBI finally caught up with her. Uh, so that was really a, lar a big news story. And alongside of that story, there was just uh, a, a couple of smaller stories to put the SLA into context. Uh, and so with one of those stories, a picture of Camilla uh, ran alongside of it. And there was a small caption that said that she had been born in St. Peter, Minnesota. And uh, at that time, I was living in Mankato, Minnesota, which I actually still live there. Uh, so St. Peter was only about 10 miles from me, but I had never heard of her. I was fairly well versed uh, with the SLA. I knew the, the basic story about the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, but I had never, ever heard that this woman from just up the road, who had grown up just up the road, um, had been involved in the SLA and had been part of the group uh, when they did kidnap Patty Hearst. And so I just became very curious. I, I wanted to know more. Right, yeah. And much of what makes the story so compelling is this question, how does a small town pastor's daughter end up being shot to death by Los Angeles police? W would you tell us about Camilla Hall's growing up period in St. Peter? Sure. Uh, yes, as you said, her father was a Lutheran pastor. He had moved to St. Peter in 1938 to actually take a job at Gustavus Adolphus College, which was um, a, a Lutheran college, uh, still still around, still there. Uh, so he uh, became a theology professor, a religion professor, um, and uh, he had just gotten married. And so they settled in St. Peter. And, and in quick succession, he and his wife, Lorena, had four children. Uh, so Camilla was born in 1945. So she spent her elementary school years in St. Peter. They ended up moving around 1956. Uh, George Hall had taken a job uh, up in St. Paul, Minnesota at that time. So she really just spent those first 10 or so years of her life uh, in St. Peter. The family suffered a lot of grief, right? Uh, yeah. Three out of the four children, C Camilla's siblings, are young when they pass away. 
Yeah, it, it is just completely tragic uh, and and just uh, so so sad. So, right, uh, the the children, Camilla's siblings, did die uh, fairly young. Uh, so the oldest boy. Uh, died in 1948. Uh, he appeared, you know, it was in the 1940s. So they really, I don't think we're entirely sure what had happened, but it appeared that he had contracted some kind of virus um, that attacked his heart. Um, and he died and he actually died when the family was on a family trip out West. So I think he died in Rapid City, uh, South Dakota on that family uh, vacation. So really sad. And three years later, another boy, Peter, died. And he appeared to have some kind of kidney condition. So it, it may have been some kind of uh, genetic uh, kidney issue uh, that, that caused his passing. So then for about uh, 10 years, it was Camilla and her younger sister, Nan. And Nan had been born with some health problems. She had been born with some sort of joint disorder. She had spent um, a lot of her childhood in casts and a lot of her childhood in and out of hospitals uh, to treat that condition. Uh, and she was in high school. She was 15 years old. Uh, when she died, um, again, the account seemed to suggest she may have also had this kidney issue that contributed to her death. So at that point, Camilla is a senior in high school. She's 17. So at 17 years old, uh, she is the only child left uh, uh, out of the four that were born to George and Lorena. And tragedy like this can often either destroy a family or bring them much closer. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Camilla and her parents, they become a pretty tight family unit as a result. Yeah, I think they were a tight family unit, um, but also because Camilla, by all accounts, uh, appeared to be fine. You know, I, I think that the whole family took on that very Midwestern approach to grief and emotions and loss and uh uh, the approach being, we're not going to talk about it, and we're going to pretend that everything is okay. Uh, so C Camilla did seem on the on the outside to be okay. So she finished out her senior year of high school very involved. She was in a lot of clubs. She was in the class play. She was voted class clown. She's very outgoing and very witty, witty and very very fun to be a to be around. So I think because of that, her parents thought, oh, she's okay. That That's good. She's okay. Um, and But they did kind of leave her to her own devices. And so I do feel that there may have been a sense of uh, detachment uh, with her parents. So for example, even before she finishes her senior year of high school, George takes a job uh, in the Chicago suburbs. And so they basically move and or in, are in the process of moving while Camilla is still back in Minneapolis finishing out school. So there did seem to be times where uh, her father prioritized his, his work over really kind of concentrating on the family. But again, it was the early 60s, again, the family appeared to be fine. Camilla appeared to be fine. Um, so I don't think it was any kind of, you know, nefarious choices. I think that's just how they approached uh, their lives. Right, right. Uh, he writes some of his memories down later in life. And one of the events he talks about in his memoir uh, was a moment that he believed might have been pivotal for Camilla and a poor decision on their part, and this relates to her high school graduation. Yeah, exactly. So George had uh, typed up this manuscript after his wife died, uh, just kind of to, to put down his memories and to hand it out to family members and, and that type of thing. So I did have a, a copy of that um, that was made available through the Gustavus archives. But in that um, manuscript, you know, it, it's very, it's very much, I did this and then I did this and I did this kind of a recounting of all of these jobs he had had and the places he had lived and that kind of thing. And he rarely dives into any kind of emotion. So it is striking that he does talk about this incident when Camilla graduated from high school. I think he, he really was filled with a lot of regret and always felt bad about that uh, throughout his life. So he and Lorena had gone up to Duluth. They had a cabin north of Duluth and they went up to 
uh, over the weekend to basically open it up for the summer and, and get it aired out and that kind of thing. And they were going to be back in time for Camilla's graduation uh, from Washburn High School, but uh, they hit a deer it, it, it damaged their car, so they had to stay overnight up north and, and get a mechanic to look at it the next day and get home. But that was the day of the graduation. So by the time they got home, they barely made it to the ceremony. And then afterwards, they hadn't planned anything. And there was this tradition that uh, parents take their children out for dinner and just kind of have this nice commemorative uh, celebration. And they just went back home. And Camilla fixes herself a sandwich and she's in tears. She's very upset because she really felt like they did not even care about her to do this special thing that, that all her friends' parents were doing. Um, so like I said, he does write about that. And I think he, he really did feel bad about that particular weekend because she was their only child left and they really kind of ignored her. Right, yeah. So after she graduates from high school, she then begins attending Gustavus Adolphus College. Yeah, she goes to Gustavus for one year. So at that point, her dad was no longer uh, teaching there, but still it was kind of this family tradition and he had had such a long association with it. But it, it's a very small, you know, at that time it was very small. It's still a very small campus. Um, and I think she felt just more at home uh, in a city at a larger campus. So she stayed at Gustavus for one year and then she transferred to the University of Minnesota. And that's where she finished out her college career in 1967. And what does she study? What are her interests? What kind of friends does she have? Yeah, she studied humanities. Um, so really just taking a, a wide variety of courses. Um, I did get a hold of her transcript. And it's kind of funny because you can tell that uh, she's like maybe a typical college students that if uh, if it was a class that just, you know, the teacher didn't energize her or something, uh, she didn't do very well. So I think there's an art class that she got a C in, which is really ironic because she herself was a very talented artist, as was her mother. So, you know, the grades are kind of a little bit back and forth, but she does uh, finish out with humanities. And at that time, uh, so it's we're in the mid to late 60s. And so she is finding a community in people who who you know are against the Vietnam War and they're for peace and they're for women's rights and that type of thing she is falling in with with that kind of group right she, she works for uh, Eugene um, or or uh, George was it oh yeah McCarthy <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I started because... with Eugene McCarthy and then I second-guessed myself and went with McGovern I know <laughs> it, it's the McGoverns and the McCarthys I, I always have to take a step back to figure out who's who. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she works as a social worker in Duluth. Yep. So right out of college, she gets a job um, as a social worker in St. Louis County. So she uh, moves up to Duluth, Minnesota, um, and works there for about a year. And so this is uh, late 67 into 68. So yes, yeah, she is becoming quite active in politics and uh, is campaigning for Eugene McCarthy, really like really likes him, not a fan of Humphrey. So she is very strictly anti-war and wants to vote for the Democrat that's gonna get us out of the war. Um, so she's really fully behind him and obviously is disappointed during the primaries when Humphrey gets the nomination. So at what point does she move out to California and what prompts her move? Yeah, so she stays in Duluth for about one year and she moves back to Minneapolis to work for Hennepin County uh, in their welfare department. So, so very similar type of job. And then she's in Minneapolis for about a, a, a year and a half or so. Um, and she has a former coworker who had moved out to California to the Los Angeles area. And I think uh, Camilla was just, uh, I think the, the weather appealed to her. I don't, I, I really do not think she was a huge fan of the winter. So certainly California looked very appealing that way. She has this friend who's out there and, you know, I'd mentioned uh, Camilla's art, art before. She is a talented artist and the social work job is very intense, um, very kind of heavy emotionally. Uh, so she decides to go to California to live with this friend for a bit and try her hand at art to try to make a career out of being an artist. And what do her parents think about this? The fact that she gave up social work and started living more of a, a 
bohemian lifestyle, I, I guess would be a, a way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it, that would be a good categorization of it. Um, her parents seemed to be supportive. Um, I, uh, Lorena, her mother, uh, was an artist, a very, very talented artist and painter. She had gone to college and studied art. Um, George was a pastor, but also very, um, very worldly. So he also had an artistic streak. Um, he, he drew and he did sculpture or like wood carving and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I think they were, they, I think they just really wanted Camilla to be happy and uh, if this was a move that was going to make her happy, they, they seem to always be supportive of her and her decisions. And she's living largely off of a trust fund, right? Yeah, it's, it's a little unclear, but there, there is a reference in one of her letters that there's some trust money coming in. Um, you know, certainly she could have saved some money working, uh, you know, working for those couple of years in social work, um, goes to California. And it, it is hard to, to think about though, right? But when you think about like 1970, you probably could move to California and live, live a pretty simple life without actually needing a whole lot of money. Right, right. So would you give us a brief history of the Symbionese Liberation Army and how and when Camilla decided to join? Yeah, so like going way back, the, the, the first like the first documents that SLA would have produced would have been in early 1973. But prior to that, starting maybe in 1971 or 1972, there was a, a group of radicals uh, in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, and they would meet up and they would actually go into uh, prisons. Um, there was really uh, quite a movement at that time where basically outsiders could go into prisons and could like participate in these prisoner movements and these prisoner groups, um, like college classes, college students would go into prisons and, and kind of be part of these groups. I mean, again, it kind of blows your mind to think of this because <laughs> I think like today, oh my gosh, that would never happen. So in these, in these prisons, you had like these classes, these groups, organizations that would meet that were made up of like, outsiders uh, coming into the prison and then the prisoners themselves. And so there were, um, like, like I said, several radicals from the Bay Area would be part of this group. And that's where the people who eventually became the SLA, this is really where they start to coalesce and they meet each other. And so when they go back to their apartments and their houses, uh, that kind of thing, they're, they're still meeting up, they're, they're watching, you know, kind of like radical films, documentaries, like about the Algerian revolution and that kind of thing. They're, they're very big into Che Guevara and kind of any revolutionary movement. movement. So they're starting to, to come together. And then for the SLA actually starting, there was one of the prisoners who had been involved in these, in these organizations um, he he escaped. Uh, this was March of 1973. So he goes to the Bay Area to find some of these people that he had been in, in these organizations with. And eventually he ends up staying at the apartment of a woman named Patricia Soltisic. So Patricia and Camilla had been lovers prior to this. They met in 1971 when Camilla moved to the same apartment building in Berkeley where Patricia had been living. Um, and so, so they quickly become lovers and then they kind of have this on again, off again relationship. But by early 1973, it appears to be off. It appears that they have broken up, that they are not even in touch when Donald DeFries, the escaped convict, comes to live with Patricia Soltisic. So uh, Patricia and DeFries and a couple of others are the ones who are uh, starting uh, to write those manifestos, um, and they are starting the, the Symbionese Liberation Army. So Camilla really becomes involved in the SLA after the assassination of Marcus Foster, right? Yeah, right. That's what it, that's what it appears to be. And just because Camilla really, she's the least likely terrorist, uh, she was not involved in these prison meetings. Um, from what I can tell, I have never read any mention that she was that she was involved in that, that she had signed any visitor logs or anything like that. So she she does seem to be a very fringy 
very, very on the fringe. And I don't think even a member, you know, at these early times. So somehow at some point, um, she and Patricia Soltisik do get back in touch. And it does appear to be much later in the year and after the Marcus Foster assassination. Uh, that happened in November of 1973. Um, really bizarre, uh, just a very, very bizarre um, situation there. Marcus Foster was uh, Oakland's first black school superintendent. And by all accounts, he's doing a fabulous job. He's connecting with the kids. He, you know, it's a very racially diverse school system. He's doing a great job, just kind of making headway. Um, but the SLA had a problem. He wanted to um, start a student identification uh, process, uh, much like we have today. I think every student in every high school has a student ID, um, but that was not really a thing back then. He wanted to do that because he had had some problems in the district with non-students coming in and causing trouble. Um, but uh, the SLA members thought that this was just another way to identify problem students, um, to kind of uh, fill the school to prison pipeline. Uh, they were very against it. And so they targeted Marcus Foster and they, um, as he was leaving a school board meeting one night, um, they assassinated him. But yes, Camilla's involvement seems to have come probably more toward the end of December of 1973. Right. So she becomes part of the inner circle. Correct? Yeah, she yeah, she does. Um, it, it was kind of like two separate groups, kind of like two separate uh, circles of people who all knew each other through various activities. Um, and these two circles came together. And when I say circles, I'm talking four or five people. <laughs> this was not a large organization. Um, and Camilla's only entry really would have been through Patricia Soltisik. Um, but, uh, but I think they needed people. Um, after they assassinated Foster, um, to no surprise, there was, you know, many people in the Bay Area said, whoa, what's happening? This is going way too far. Like, our world has problems, but this is not any way to solve it. So they had very little support. So I think in Camilla, you know, they saw someone who, despite this assassination, you know, she still had feelings for Patricia Soltisik. She still had feelings about trying to um, fight uh, inequity. Um, I think they saw her as somebody that they could bring in to the fold and that she would support their goals. Right. So Camilla does join in time to take part in the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Mm -hmm. What was her role in the kidnapping? Yep. So she is she is a member during that time, and that was February fourth, nineteen seventy four. Um, Camilla's role was basically a lookout. Um, she may have been sitting in a car with Patricia Soltisik. The the passenger is a little unclear, but um, but we know Camilla was waiting on the street in a car uh, for the other members of the group to actually physically proceed with the kidnapping. And so her role was to be basically the support vehicle, um, kind of a getaway vehicle. Um, so as soon as they did kidnap Patty and, and threw her into one car and peeled away, Camilla just followed uh, right in line behind them with her car. So Patty Hearst was involved in the robbery of the Hibernia Bank in 1974. And she's captured on camera, uh, very famous images. And Camilla Hall is part of that bank robbery as well. Yep, that's right. So there were five people who went into the bank that day. And yep, Patty Hearst being one of them, holding her, her machine gun there. Um, the, the, uh, the security cameras caught that image of her. And so certainly after that happened, you know, kind of the, the SLA just exploded onto the scene. People couldn't believe it, that there was this young 19-year-old you know, newspaper heiress from this famous family that now appears to actually be an active part of this group. And yep, Camilla is in the bank that day too. So if you do look at the security camera footage, you can see her um, walking in the bank. Um, she's wearing a wig and a dark coat. Um, so, and so many uh, many of the people, many of the SLA people were in, in disguise uh, during that bank robbery. We will return after this brief break. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back again. Part of the reason Patty Hearst's abduction is so fascinating for people is, of course, this transformation that she makes uh, in, in just a few weeks from kidnap victim to a full participating member of the group that kidnapped her. Yeah, it, it, it really was a, a captivating storyline. I mean, it is a dramatic storyline. It has just kind of all of these narrative elements that really keep people um, wanting to know more. I mean, I kind, of, I kind of liken it today, you know, like if Kim Kardashian were kidnapped or something like that, just somebody that really, really famous, really um, major name recognition. And I think a big part of why people do still talk about Patty Hearst today is because we, we really don't know. You know, Patty Hearst has never come out herself and said, oh, you know, it happened this way or it happened that way, um, that, we, that we really are left to, to speculate. And I think there's just so much of the evidence, including at her trial, that point to, point to her actually becoming a, an active member, you know, uh, at her own free will, um, toward the end, especially um, since she was with the group for a year and a half and had many, many chances to leave, was left alone a, a huge majority of the time. Uh, so, but I think uh, that that really is a reason why we're still fascinated because I think you you could also argue for her being, you know, a, a, a traumatized captive as well for that year and a half. So, just kind of the unknown of exactly what she was thinking. Uh, remains really fascinating. And the term Stockholm Syndrome is popularized after people become more aware of the the extent of her participation. Yeah, Mm -hmm. this would be the case that really put that in the public consciousness. I think the actual Stockholm Syndrome case, uh, the first one was maybe the the year before. I mean, it had just happened uh, right before the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Um, so, so it really um, it did put that terminology much more into the forefront of of the public consciousness. So, Patty Hearst does write a book in the early '80s. She talks about Camilla in the book. She only hears her at, at first because she's blindfolded early on. But later, the blindfold is removed and Patty can observe her. What were Patty's impressions of Camilla? Yeah, again, um, Patty, her own account of Camilla really puts Camilla in an outsider status. Um, in that book, Camilla is the, the one mentioned the least. Certainly, there was never hardly any conversations between Patty and Camilla. There was certainly not any kind of bond um, that Patty had. Camilla was not one of the SLA members that would have um, visited Patty in the closet while she was there for six weeks to kind of, you know, start that that brainwashing cycle of talking to her about their mission and their goals and that kind of thing. So she, she really does portray uh, Camilla as an outsider, kind of awkward, um, somebody who's kind of ungainly, not very good with her gun. Uh, the other members are kind of you know, frustrated with her. I mean, she really ends up portraying her as just kind of a, a sad, sad, pitied person, um, which is really kind of hard to read because I just end up feeling really sorry for Camilla um, through Patty's portrayal of her. At what point does the FBI identify Camilla? When does she become a person of interest? So she is actually able to remain above ground for about three weeks after the Hearst kidnapping, just because she is such a fringy member, um, had, had not been on the radar of, of any law enforcement groups. You know, I think many of the people in those radical circles had been looked at and followed and surveilled and that kind of thing, but Camilla never was. Uh, so she manages to uh, kind of be a runner in those uh, few weeks after the kidnapping, but as soon as they they connect her to Patricia Soltisik, you know uh, they they know they know Soltisik is part of this group. 
Um, they kind of had had their eyes on the group for a few months since the foster murder. Uh, so once they were looking at Patricia Soltisik and looking at her circle of friends, you know, they started to put two and two together that, oh, people hadn't seen this Camilla Hall for a while. She seemed to have kind of dropped off the radar. Um, so perhaps she is also part of this group, but they did not know for sure until the bank robbery, because then they could have um, those identifiable faces through the bank surveillance. Um, so at that point, Camilla's picture gets put on the FBI wanted posters along with Patty Hearst. So what was Camilla's role in this group exactly? And oh, and by the way, this was just a miserable existence uh, for a number of months. They were basically moving from one safe house to the next, living in terrible conditions. Yeah, it's it's terrible. It is hard to fathom. I was I was doing the final revisions on this book during COVID when we're in lockdown, and you know I'm just living with my husband in a fairly big house. But even at that point, it's like wow, this is kind of really close quarters. So to imagine nine people in the space of like a teeny tiny apartment and they are not going anywhere. You know, they can't go outside. They don't want to be identified. I, I just can't even fathom what that must have been like. You know, there's one toilet, there's one toothbrush, like they're sharing a toothbrush. Um, just really, really terrible, terrible conditions. Um, but it, it doesn't appear that anybody had any kind of particular roles. Um, but when they all originally came into the group, they each had kind of a, a cause that they were really kind of fighting for that was really important to them. So for Camilla, it would have been women's rights. Um, and it also would have been gay rights. Uh, she was living pretty openly as a lesbian once she got to the Bay Area. But it was a part of her life. Uh, for example, her parents never knew that, that she was uh, living that way. Um, so part of her was always keeping that a secret. So speaking of her parents, were her parents aware that she was in the SLA? Yeah, I think they started to get suspicious after the Hearst kidnapping because they were, you know, then, then they were starting to not hear from her. Um, and they always knew that she had, you know, that she, she was really very passionate about inequality and that kind of thing. Um, and there, the Christmas before, so the Christmas of 1973, she came home for a visit and uh, George writes in his memoir that, that she was very, very kind of apocalyptic in the way she was talking. Um, she really made it sound like Armageddon was coming. She was just really in this dark, dark place. Um, but but they kind of dismissed it as, oh, she's young. This is the, the younger generation is feeling really hopeless. And so they didn't think too much about it. But when they start to not hear from her, Patty Hearst gets kidnapped. Um, they are starting to put two, to, two and two together themselves. And they do start to wonder if she had gotten wrapped up in this. Right, right. So their final safe house is at 1466 East 54th Street, and this is in Compton, right? Yeah, it's in South Central Los Angeles. But they don't end up living here for long. No, no, it's 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 literally a, a day or, or two days. Uh, they leave San Francisco because they really feel like um, they feel like they're getting closed in. They feel like the cops are really starting to get closer. Um, Donald DeFreeze uh, originally uh, had lived in Los Angeles for a while. Obviously, Camilla did too. So they had some familiarity with LA. So they decided to go to LA and, and hide there. Um, just kind of ironically, though, they are in a, a largely all black neighborhood and Donald DeFreeze is their only black member. So they're not doing a very good job of hiding if they wanted to truly hide. But they do end up, yeah, in South Central Los Angeles. Right. And, and I guess just as a sign of their desperation, they just kind of walked into this house. They're not really invited. <laughs> no, no, they kind of just take over. They have some money. So they have money from the from the bank robbery. And I forget how much they offer the, the owner. I mean, it was like a hundred bucks or something, which back in 1974, not very bad, right? And, and But they thought it was kind of a good place. They were driving around. And I think there was kind of a natural 
wall, kind of like a, a, a you know, wall barrier. Uh, so they thought, oh, that could offer some protection, you know, if the police do come along. So they do kind of take over this house. But again, they're not, they're not hiding very well. They bring in their guns, they bring in their ammo, uh, they're chit-chatting with the renters, neighbors are coming in and out, you know, I mean, word is spreading really quickly that there are some strange people visiting this house. Right. And, and it's the grandmother, Mary Carr, who alerts authorities because there are kids there. Yeah, there's a couple of kids. There's a couple of kids there, like uh, eight years old and 11 years old. And, and the mother is like back in the bedroom. And I think she has some drugs, you know, so the mother's not really aware of what's going on. And so I think one of the boys goes to get his grandma and says, hey, <laughs> there's some really strange people in our house right now. With a lot of guns piled up in guns. the middle of the room. Yep. So the grandmother goes to the police. Yeah, yeah. You know, police are in that neighborhood. Um, she she lets people know. Yeah, she lets uh, law enforcement know. But really what led the police to that area in the first place was um, Patty Hearst and Bill and Emily Harris. So the tr the, that trio were sent out to get some supplies. So they go to like a sporting goods store. Uh, so they get some supplies, they, you know, go through the cash register. Bill Harris, for some reason, decides to put a pair of socks in his coat. He decides to steal a pair of socks, even though they're buying everything else. And the clerk sees him and uh, confronts him as he's walking out. And there's a gunfight. You know, Bill has a gun. And I think this clerk has a gun, too. Um, and then Patty is in the van and she hears the gunfight. So she starts spraying her gun toward, you know, the opening of this sporting goods store. Bill and Emily Harris get away and Patty Hearst and they hijack another car and all sorts of chaos ensues. But in the original van they were in, there was a parking ticket for that area of South Central Los Angeles where they just had been. So that combined with this Mary Carr saying, hey, so a bunch of, you know, white people with guns in this house. The police were able to pinpoint the SLA to that location. So would you walk us through the day of when, when police begin surrounding this house? What happens? How do these, these, these SLA radicals react? Yeah, so, so they're pinpointed at that house and the, the police, you know, set up just this huge barricade area but they're kind of trying to be quiet about it, you know, because they want to sneak up on the SLA. So they set up this, this perimeter and they bring in 400 police officers. There's 400 police officers there. Uh, the SWAT team is fairly new. Um, that was a fairly new thing for LAPD at that time. Uh, so the SWAT team's there. Some FBI agents are there. And eventually they surround the house. Um, they shout through the bullhorn hey, we're the police, come out and surrender. They say that a few times. And then I think a grenade or some, this is according to the police, but they say, you know, some shots are fired from inside the house, a grenade or, or tear gas gets lobbed into the house. And pretty soon there's a shootout and a, a very strong fire. Yeah, there, there would be criticism of the police by some afterwards. There was a telephone in the house. No one tried calling it. Some believed they should have set up lights behind the house, so it would have been easier to see people trying to escape from the back. And others criticized the LAPD for sending such a large number of officers that there were almost too many to be effective. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the, the SLA had really embarrassed law enforcement for the, for the three months leading up to this. It was a huge embarrassment to the FBI that they could not locate Patty Hearst. Um, huge embarrassment that the SLA seems to just keep moving and hiding and nobody can find them. You know, it's nine people and nobody can find them. So, you know, law enforcement as a, as a whole uh, are really frustrated. And also it's 1974. Most of that anti-Vietnam War protest had died down, but there certainly are still pockets of radicalism going on at this time and actually becoming more violent. You had the weather underground with their bombings and you had other groups doing bombings. Um, so I, I think uh, law enforcement saw this as a way to say, we can do a show of force, we can shut this down right now and we can show other groups who, if they are thinking of doing anything like this, they better not because 
we're going to come in and annihilate anybody who's who's going to think about doing this. So I think that was a huge reasoning behind having just so, so many police officers and FBI agents there that day. Right. A child exits the house first. Yeah, so there are still a couple of people in the house. Um, you know, it, it is that type of house where it was kind of like a neighborhood gathering place. People are always in and out. So there's a one of the young boys is in the house yet, along with the woman who had, the mom who had been back in the bedroom, I think basically um, passed out actually as this is happening. Somehow she, you know, wakes up with all of this racket going on. And so they are able to get out um, those last two occupants into safety. So the militants had automatic weapons. They had gas masks. Uh, a gun battle ensued, and they were able to fend off police for a bit. They, it, it does last a pretty long time. Um, I think it, it, this gunfight lasts for about an hour. And at some point, the house catches on fire. Yeah, it does. You know, there was just so much... Um, tear gas and other ammunition that the house eventually catches on fire. Um, and another criticism during this time is that the, the fire department was on the scene too. And the, the fire chief, I mean, you know, a fire chief can't just watch a building burn. I mean, that's going to be like really against everything they stand for. So the fire chief was really itching to get in there and the, the police wouldn't let the fire trucks in to fight the fire. So what about Camilla? We don't know, right, whether she was firing at officers with the others, but but it's pretty likely she was. Yeah, probably. Um, they they really were they really were trained. I mean, they had trained every day for this. They had trained every day since the kidnapping for this very scenario. So when they're in those safe houses, they're constantly doing uh, drills and running and. Pra I mean, they couldn't fire their weapons, obviously, but they were practicing, you know, going through the motions of firing weapons, they, they knew, they knew eventually they were going to have to have some kind of battle with police. And so they were preparing for that. Um, Camilla does come out of the house. Uh, according to the police report, she comes out shooting. Um, so they shoot her in the head. And uh, other accounts will say that she came out to surrender. So you have a, a couple of different stories uh, on her actions there. But she's dragged back inside, right? She is. So she, she falls and she kind of lands on these like front steps and somebody from inside the house manages to, to grab her body and, and drag her back into the house. And it's a type of house that doesn't have a basement, but it has like those crawl spaces. And so um, t takes her body and, and puts it in one of those crawl spaces. And she's joined by others in the crawl space and defreeze ends up killing himself right he, he shoots himself in the head yeah uh, yeah again according to the police report yeah it, that's what it appears ha to have happened in the immediate aftermath though it, it's not entirely clear what happens to camilla so her parents hold out hope that she is okay yeah, they do. So, so after everything settles down, the, the house burns to the ground. Uh, so by the time investigators can get in there, they find five bodies. Um, and, and they really are, you know, they're burnt, right? So they're kind of burnt beyond recognition. So right away, it's, it's impossible to tell who's who, who's been killed. Um, and even right away, uh, because nobody knew where Patty Hearst went, you know, they, they didn't know yet that about this shootout and where they might have gone and that kind of thing. Um, there, it, it, it could have been Patty Hearst, you know, like people thought that maybe she was in the house. Um, so it's really not until two days later that the bodies are identified and that, uh, Camilla's body is found in that crawl space just because initially, uh, initially it was hidden, like it wasn't obviously there. So it wasn't until people on the scene sifted more through the house's remains that they found Camilla's body. And a letter is found amongst her charred belongings. Yeah, there is a letter. And so the letter is very, very radical. Um, very much, this is what we had to do. We're going to fight to the death. Um, kind of all, of all of this stuff. But again, it's one of those things where the police went in and they were like, 
oh, hey, look at this letter, you know, that, that just says exactly kind of like justifies the reasons for us going in there and killing everyone that, that they were, you know, really of this radical state of mind. So again, kind of like to, to, to prove the veracity of that letter is a little difficult to do. So one of the questions you ask in your book, and others have too, is what turned this sweet, mild-mannered young woman who, who genuinely cared about others, especially those less fortunate than her, into a gun-toting militant? What really drew her into the SLA? And there are many who believe it was love, right? Yep. Absolutely. Um, you know, she, here's this Patricia Soltisic that um, out of... I mean, as, as far as what we know, as far as what's documented, it, it would have been uh, the person that Camilla appeared to have been with the longest, you know, so in, in terms of maybe this is the person in her life that, that she had actually loved the most um, and wanted to find a way to be with her. And I, I think that's certainly plausible. It certainly could be uh, one of the reasons why she did join the group. But really, you know, the ultimate conclusion I came to after writing this book is that there's so many reasons. It's so complex. Um, you can go back to her family situation. Did she join the SLA because she was looking for a family? You know, she'd grown up with all her siblings dying. Was she harboring a secret from her parents? Was that becoming really difficult to live with? There's also some speculation that Camilla also was sick, that she also had this kidney disease that seemed to have affected um, two of her siblings. So, so maybe she had gotten some bad news of like, hey, you know what, you're, you're going to die too, or you're going to die really soon. Maybe she thought, well, here's one way I can go out, you know. But ultimately, the, I think it's, it's complex. It's a, a lot of different reasons would have fed into her decision. But also looking at what's happening Today, I think today we are also really quick to just want to assign one particular reason for for actions such as this. Oh, why did somebody become a militant? Why did somebody, you know, participate in January 6th? Oh, it must have been this one thing. But I think anybody who is making these kind of decisions, they they really aren't snap decisions. You know, they it's something has been feeding into it for a long, long time until finally somebody decides to, to cross the line into violence. So one of the other questions you, you ponder in your book, and I'm sure that this was something pondered by her parents for the rest of their lives, was there a certain point during their communications with her leading up to her going underground that they might have saved her if they had just asked maybe one more question? pressured her a little bit more about her situation. Yeah, I think definitely that last Christmas visit uh, that George even says, looking back on it, wow, I, I wish we really would have asked her more questions and really asked her what's going on. But again, I just attribute attribute that to this, this Midwestern way of life or this mid Midwestern thought process. Like, well, you know, generally she seems okay. And, and like, we don't want to pry, you know, she, she has her life. We don't want to be the parents who seem to be like overbearing and have our nose into everything. I think they were very much like, oh, let's just let her be. She was 28 at that time. So it's not like she was, you know, a, a really, really young person. So I think they, they wanted to trust her to a certain extent, but yeah, they did have regrets that they didn't ask more questions then and, and wonder if that might've changed something. It's, it's gotta be hard to, to be a parent, to have four children and to outlive them all. I mean, how does somebody cope with that? Yeah, you know, they, they certainly did have their faith. They had very, very strong faith. And I think without that, it would have been uh, very difficult uh, for them to, to move on. So my Minnesota listeners, I'm sure, are very familiar with Sarah Jane Olson. Uh, you talked a bit about her earlier. It was very big news when she was captured in St. Paul, years after her participation in the SLA. I know it was news all over America. But, but where does she fit into the history of the organization? Did she know Camilla Hall? She wasn't involved in the Hearst kidnapping, right? Nope, she was not. She did not know Camilla. So she was very good friends with Angela Atwood, who was a member of the original group of the SLA. 
Uh, there, there are some accounts that say that Sarah Jane Olson was interested in joining like at, at that time, um, but that uh, the rest of the group really wasn't too sure about her. They weren't too sure about her commitment or that kind of thing. Uh, so when, when Angela died, Angela died in the same shootout that Camilla died, the three remaining, the Bill and Emily Harris and Patty Hearst, obviously needed some support. You know, they needed to, to regroup and they were looking for people who could help them. So at that point... Sarah Jane Olson, um, you know, going by her birth name at that time, uh, Kathleen Celaya, uh, joined the SLA after the shootout. Well, well I appreciate you coming on. Uh, just a fascinating story. And for people who want to connect with you, learn more about your book, your work, they can do it through your website. Yes, it's just uh, Rachel Hannell. Dot com. I, I always say I'm pretty easy to find. I'm, I'm out there. I'm on the web. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on X. <laughs> so it's not hard to find me. And for any aspiring authors out there who want to get working on the next historical true crime book, but maybe need some help with their writing skills, you offer private workshops, writing classes, and people can do this online with you, right? Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm happy to, to work with people, you know, if they just need a little extra uh, assistance. I, I organize some writing retreats and that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I love nonfiction. I just can't tell you how much I love nonfiction. And it's really, really fun for me um, when somebody has a, a good story to help them figure out the best way to present that. You also do copy editing, correct? Yeah, um, I did spend some time as a copy editor uh, in my newspaper career, and I love it. Like, it's uh, errors to me are like neon signs; they do kind of just pop out. So, yeah, I do like doing that kind of line editing work as well. Well, thank you so much for your time today. That this has been so interesting. Thank you. I sure appreciate you taking in an interest in it and uh, having me on the show. It's always really um, I, I love I love this story. I love talking about Camilla. Again, I have been speaking to Rachel Hannell. She is the author of Not the Camilla We Knew, One Woman's Path from Small-Town America to the Symbionese Liberation Army. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Until next time. of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com it's like your own personal post office sign up with promo code program for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale no long-term commitments or contracts that's stamps.com code program everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.